This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business and innovation to your stories, and you can send us your best at ouramericannetwork.org. We love to hear from our listeners, and we produce them, and we put them right back up on the airwaves and on our podcasts, and we play them for you. Your stories interest us, and they're some of the best we've done. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our five best stories each week. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll send them to you in audio form and in typed form, in written form as well. And now it's time for an essay, an article by Thomas Paine. And we had given you one other by this great Revolutionary War writer called Common Sense, and it was performed good pieces of it. During our Constitution Week, we do it every year. But this one is called The American Crisis, and it's a collection of articles written by Paine during the Revolutionary War between 1776 and 1783 that came after his widely popular pamphlet, Common Sense. So this followed that masterpiece. General George Washington found this first essay so inspiring that he ordered it to be read to the troops at Valley Forge. Here now is the voice of the late, the great Orson Welles. From a pamphlet, the first in the series called The American Crisis by Thomas Paine, written by him December 19th, 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Tis dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Why is it that the enemy have left the New England provinces and made these middle ones the seat of war? The answer is easy. New England is not infested with Tories, and we are. And what is a Tory? Good God, what is he? I should not be afraid to go with a hundred Whigs against a thousand Tories were they to attempt to get into arms. Every Tory is a coward, for a servile, slavish, self-interested fear is the foundation of Toryism, and a man under such influence, though he may be cruel, never can be brave. I once felt all that kind of anger which a man ought to feel against the mean principles that are held by the Tories. A noted one who kept a tavern at Amboy was standing at his door with as pretty a child in his hand about eight or nine years old as I ever saw, and after speaking his mind as freely as he thought was prudent, finished with this unfatherly expression. Well, give me peace in my day. Not a man lives on the continent but fully believes that a separation must sometime or other finally take place. And a, a generous parent would have said, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day that my child may have peace. And this single reflection, well applied, is sufficient to awaken every man to duty. I call not upon a few, but upon all. Not on this state or that state, but on every state. Up and help us lay your shoulders to the wheel. Better have too much force than too little when so great an object is at stake. 
Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter, when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and the country, alarmed at one common danger, came forth to meet and to repulse it. It matters not where you live or what rank of life you hold. The evil or the blessing will reach you all. The far and the near, the home counties in the back, the rich and the poor will suffer or rejoice alike. The heart that feels not now is dead. The blood of his children shall curse his cowardice, who shrinks back at a time when a little might have saved the whole and made them happy. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. It is the business of little minds to shrink. But he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. My own line of reasoning is to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light, not all the treasures of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief break into my house, burn and destroy my property and kill or threaten to kill me or those that are in it, am I to suffer it? What signifies it to me, whether he who does it is a king or a common man, my countrymen or not my countrymen, whether it be done by an individual villain or an army of them, let them call me rebel and welcome. I feel no concern from it. But I should suffer the misery of devils were I to swear allegiance to one whose character is that of a sottish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man. I conceive likewise a horrid idea in receiving mercy from a being who at the last day shall be shrieking to the rocks and mountains to cover him and fleeing with terror from the orphan, the widow, and the slain of America. There are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. By perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils. A ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. And again, that's Orson Welles, and what a reading. And my goodness, let them call me rebel and welcome it. And we can understand why General George Washington had this essay in particular read to the American troops fighting against the mighty British army. Nobody could have predicted, by the way, that we would beat that army, a ragtag army of our own assembled on the fly, and we did it. And we tell these stories because... Well, when you start to hear things like, boy, America's so divided. Well, listen to our hour with Daniel Mark Epstein called The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's Home. And my goodness, Ben Franklin was with the Patriots. His son, who was the governor of New Jersey, was not. The father, regrettably, never talked to the son again. The son, well, the governor of New Jersey, who sided with the British, found himself in solitary confinement for two years and then exiled to England. America has been divided for a long time. And my goodness, these stories remind us that we do it, for the most part, today, peacefully. This is Lee Habib, Orson Welles, Thomas Paine, The American Crisis, here on Our American Stories.
continue with our American stories, and we have a few regular contributors that we like to call our own that we've discovered. Uh, some just were people who sent in their stories. Others we bumped into along the way, and folks just said, you got to meet this guy. He's our resident storyteller. And every town's got a few people who are the resident storytellers. And that brings us to the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose voice and life will most certainly captivate you. It has certainly captivated us. In today's episode, Bob brings us to a childhood passion, boxing, and the match the Marines forced him to fight during the Vietnam War. Often when my parents returned from home from an evening out at the cocktail lounge or at the staff club, my mother would dash up to her room and go to bed, leaving my father to have a couple drinks by himself in the kitchen. It would be at these times when my father would walk into my bedroom, turn on the light, and wait for me to wake up. I would pull the covers over my head and ask him, what are you doing turning the light on for? I've got school in the morning. He would stand in the doorway with this pouty look on his face like I hurt his feelings and say, Gee, you don't mind if I check to see if my children are safe and okay, do you? What kind of father do you think I am? But now that you're awake, why don't you come downstairs and I'll fix you something to eat. I'm going to go change. Why don't you get everything ready? These late night conversations around the kitchen table occurred many times over the years and throughout my life. And it was here, sitting alone across the table from him, that I came to know the man I call Dad. I would go down to the kitchen and get some eggs and bread and start putting everything together. He never fixed anything for himself. I, I got that by now. I had to fix everything. That was one of the reasons why I was there. Late at night, I knew he was partial to B&M Boston baked beans on saltines and herring and sour cream. My God, I used to look at it and just think I'm sick. I asked him how could he eat that stuff. He replied that growing up in his family, they were very poor. He said he even ate bean sandwiches at school. He said he was so poor that at Christmas time his father would cut holes in his pockets so he had something to play with. He would arrive in his bathrobe, boxer shorts, and t-shirt, make himself a drink, and sit at the seat in the corner. The throne, I called it. From that seat, he could see everyone in the kitchen, the stairway, and the front door. Most importantly, it was within arm's length of the refrigerator. The kitchen was the room that was the center in our house. We had a downstairs family room, but no one bothered to use it, probably because it didn't have a refrigerator to chill a beer or an ice machine for cocktails. Settling in with a smoke and some fish and beer, he would just sit, resting his large body upon his elbows, head hanging slightly, and stare down at his drink. I would sit across from him wondering, what the heck am I doing here? I got to go to school in the morning, and I knew he's not going to let me sleep in simply because I'm down here being company for him. It certainly seemed to be of no concern to him. There are not many things to talk with him about. But, you know, I knew by then he didn't invite me there to talk. He invited me down to listen. You know, being nine years of age, I was too young to have been in the Marines, drink alcohol, chase women, or do anything that was of interest to him. I didn't have any stories of anything like that that he'd even find amusing. He was not the type to do child talk the way mothers do, you know, like, well, how's my little baby? And what did you do in school today? Oh my, what a beautiful finger painting. 
No, no, not my father. He preferred talking up and not down. His world consisted of subjects, of adult men and women. He wasn't interested in what was happening in fourth grade. The distance across the table was only a few feet away, but from my seat in this theater of my father, I watched and listened to a man who by any measure lived a life that boys could only imagine in their games. I would listen and wonder and wish that someday I could grow up and be like my father. Little did I realize then that he was truly unique and a copy is not the original. If I wanted to get into a conversation with him, I had to take it to him or I would garner no attention. By nine, I'd had enough of these experiences with him to know some subjects that would engage him other than the Marines. My favorite was boxing. He loved boxing and so did I. He could recreate the fight he listened to on the radio when Max Bear killed his opponent in the ring. Round by round, he could describe the power in Bear's punches as legendary. My father thought Bear would reign forever if it weren't for the death of Frankie Campbell. Instead, Max Bear retired early and moved to Hollywood, where, with his handsome face and reputation, opened many studio and bedroom doors. My father liked that story a lot. I knew the questions to ask him to bring us closer together during those late nights at the kitchen table. I wanted to be a fighter. Football was fun, but there were too many people and too many rules. Boxing's just two men, shorts, a cup, socks, gloves, and shoes. It doesn't get any more basic than that. When the fight ends, there's seldom any confusion about who is the winner. Usually, it's the one still standing that gets the glory. He asked me if I wanted to box for the city team down at the rec center. He thought since I was always fighting in school, that learning to fight as a sport would be a good outlet for me. He also said that since I had such a big mouth, I better learn to take care of myself. The Army Field House at Fort Buckner, Okinawa was an enormous athletic facility and included an indoor pistol range, basketball courts, and a boxing room. It was in that room as I was listening to the whirring of my speed bag that I was approached by a Marine gunnery sergeant. He watched my hands working the bag into different rhythms and asked me, hey, are you in the Marines? I told him I was and continued my workout and then he asked me if I minded meeting someone. Walking with him to the ring, he introduced me to the regimental boxing coach. And he asked if I would go a couple rounds with him. I said, I pass. I'm not in shape enough to go a couple rounds, frankly. I'm not interested in getting involved with a team as I'm heading back to the United States in a month. But some of the team members gathered around and began to tease me with remarks like, oh, come on now, I won't hurt you. Just two little rounds, that's all. I finally agreed that I would not fight for this guy, but I'd give him the two rounds. He was overweight with a good-sized belly on him, and he was a showboat, intending to entertain his team with me. To me, he was all mouth and out of shape. Worse, his biggest weakness was overestimating his ability while underestimating his opponents before the first round even started. Arrogance in the boxing ring is a very careless and dangerous attitude. As I circled him in the second round, I watched him dance in and out of my reach with what he obviously mistook for footwork. My feet were set shoulder width apart, my right foot set back to the heel and toe stance, a punch like a bullet cannot propel itself. The power of a punch isn't in the hand. It starts with the planted feet set firmly on the ground with legs coiled 
to push that power up through the twisting torso as the force of the blow reaches the shoulder and the arm launches a loaded fist into your opponent's face. His hands were barely up to his shoulders when I greeted him with the first left jab into his face. Knocking him back, I followed with a quick second jab, which left him defenseless. Like a lightning bolt, my right cross surged with all my power from my legs to my glove and caught him flush right into the face. The impact of the blow sent him falling back to the ropes. He gathered himself quickly, but as he approached me, waiting for him in the center of the ring, the bell rang and the round ended. I turned and walked to my corner and took my gloves off despite his protest to continue. As I told him, I only agreed to do two rounds. I enjoyed walking out of that boxing room, watching him standing in the center of the ring after making a fool of himself. Leaving the gym, the gunny asked me if I would fight on Tuesday night. Oh, I said, Tuesday night? Tuesday night just gives me three days to train, and I knew I needed much more time. I said no, and I left. A couple days later, the Army Special Services promoter called me to ask me if I was from Portland. I said, yeah, I am. Why? He said, I see your name down on the program to fight the heavyweight fight on Tuesday night. I immediately called the gunny who informed me in no uncertain terms that the Marines needed me for that fight and he reminded me with a threat. You may not be aware, Marine, but there are Marines down south fighting in this war while you're up here having a pretty good time on Okinawa. Either you fight Tuesday night, or I'm going to put you in for a transfer to Vietnam. I had one month remaining on my tour overseas. Orders to Vietnam would add another six to my overseas duty. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story. You're listening to Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. This is Our American Stories. Turn to Bob McClellan's story, and where we last left off, Bob was being forced to fight in a boxing match or go to Vietnam. Now, I'm waiting in the locker room for my name to be called. I was very angry that I was put in this position. I knew what it took to be out there in the ring, and I didn't have the body or the soul to do it anymore. Three rounds. Didn't sound like much, but when you're out there all alone getting your head pounded for three rounds, you lose all sense of time passing. Being hit is a timeless experience. You feel like it's going to go on forever. I promised myself that this would be my last match, win or lose, and if they sent me down south to Vietnam, or the hell with them, I'll go. I entered the arena and walked up the three steps to the ring. In seconds, we would be left alone to fight. Round one was an opportunity to see what this guy could do. I could see he was a novice and perhaps this was his first fight. He had no footwork whatsoever and certainly no style. He just kept plodding forward with his hands up and his head down, 
He just methodically kept coming forward into my left jabs, looking for an opportunity to hit me. As we threw punches back and forth, you could hear the sound of the slapping of the leather gloves. What was to come, what was needed, was the dull thud of a punch to the head. I took advantage of my height, reach, and experience and kept him back from me to score quick points while not exposing myself too much. We moved across the ring, and as we were next to the ropes, I saw him open his gloves and quickly slam two hard lefts and a right cross into his face. Standing so close to him, I could see the perspiration fly from his head into the air as his head jerked sharply to the right. His jaw went in one direction and his head went in another. The expression on his face indicated that I had heard him all right, but he did not go down or back up as I had expected. Now, I'm within his range. I knew I had to get out into the open center of the ring. It was then that his punch hit me in the jaw. There was no pain from the punch. The torque of the jaw and a stun-numbing feeling caused me to black out. He hit me so hard that both of my gloves flew away from my body towards the center of the ring, exposing my head to more of his punches. I was off balance and I knew I was in trouble. He advanced closer to finish me. His right fist was cocked and ready to take my head off my shoulders. My only thought was to fall down to the canvas, take a couple seconds to ruin his momentum and well-earned advantage, then get up and beat the crap out of him. I don't recall anything after that. I had no idea that I was unconscious. I had no idea of what had happened. Instead of being on the ropes, I found myself coming to face down in the center of the ring after doing two full pirouettes before falling unconscious. The first clue that something was desperately wrong was when I heard the word six. Six, I thought. I tried to remember what it meant. Seven came next. At seven, I knew what had happened, where I was, and what I had to do. Until you return to your senses, there is no sound in the ring when you come out from a knockout. With the bright lights above you, you can't see any of the faces out in the audience screaming. All I could see were the shoes of the referee, hear the count, and stare at the white but rough texture of the canvas. I was up and at him by nine. I chased and punched him like a bag hanging in a boxing room, but he would not go down. I was so frustrated that I didn't hear the first ring of the bell ending the round. Round two, I was getting tired. He advanced and again we exchanged punches, more leather slapping. I tripped over his feet as he hit me with a faint left jab. I found myself once again down on the canvas while the ref started to count again. I was so frustrated, I got up and I was at him once more, scoring blow after blow, but I was unable to knock him down. Exhausted? I sat on my stool watching the doctor decide whether to let him continue. I did open a large cut in the soft tissue of his upper eyelid. He was cut and he was bleeding. I prayed that they would call the fight. I dreaded the prospect of going out there one more round. My hopes faded, however, as I watched the doctor signal the referee to continue the bout. Round three. By now, we were both exhausted. He wanted no part of me, nor I of him. In my mind, I'd already lost the fight. A knockout in the first and a knockdown in the second is hard to overcome on points. Since I had no one in my corner, as my coach never forgave me for embarrassing him, I had no idea how I was doing, and therefore was left with all my doubts, fatigue, and fears. I could see my opponent also wanted to run out the clock, 
I had heard him, but not enough to win. All I could feel was my lungs sucking for air. Clashing with him again, we were exchanging punches, went out of nowhere. I felt that familiar thud of his right cross into the side of my head. I stepped back, I was stunned, and momentarily I went blank. The ref quickly stood in front of me, examining my eyes, and asked, How many fingers do you see? I said, Three. He said, You okay? I took a second, and I said, You know, I don't know. No, I'm not okay. I quit this. Screw this. And then I walked over to my corner. There were 33 seconds left to go. His corner jumped into the ring and raised his hand. I felt so humiliated. That night, I had never felt as ashamed and embarrassed in my life until the next morning. A photo of myself and my opponent was sitting on the front page of the sports section of the Morning Star. It was taken as we were along the ropes just before his knockout punch was thrown. The headlines read, Boone upsets McClellan. I quickly read the article which described the fight as a clear victory for me until the third and final round. It said that in spite of the knockouts, I carried the first round on points. I carried the second round too because it was ruled that I had tripped and was not knocked down. The newspaper raised the question as, what had happened? Why did I quit? I had 33 seconds to go. The win was mine. I never forgot that. I came back to the States, saw my folks. And finally one night, the opportunity came to tell my father the story as he sat across from me holding a cigarette. And he lifted his head and with a tone of disappointment, I could see it in his face, he said, you lost because you gave it to him. Now why in the hell would you do that? I used to tell this story when I was drinking and I was living in the city in San Francisco and I'd sit on a bar and I would tell this story as some sort of self-flagellation. Whenever I would encounter something, an obstacle that I had difficulty overcoming, I would sit there and I'd beat myself up over and over that defeats like this were really indicative of my weak character. Just like my life, my defeat validated that deep insecurity that confirmed my low opinion of myself that I was a quitter. An opinion gained from being unsuccessful at almost everything I did in my life. My father was deeply disappointed, not by the fact that I lost, but that I quit. A friend asked me about it one day and remarked, gee, it must have taken a lot of guts to climb into that ring with 5,000 people watching. I said, you bet it takes a lot of guts. I didn't see anybody lined up at the steps to get in there. He said, it's sad that you never gave yourself any credit for it. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a story, and what a unique voice. And we love finding new talent, and it's all over this great country. People who've just experienced real life, and they're not auditioning for a reality TV show, and they're not trying to become famous. They're people we all know, and some of them might be you, and you have great stories. And send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we'll produce them. And it's so interesting that Bob got that friend's perspective. He got his dad's perspective, and his, his dad was right. 
you did give it to him. But, you know, sometimes we miss the good that we do and focus on the bad and that that friend pointed out to him that he got in that ring to begin with. Well, it's true. He did. Bob McClellan's story here on Our American Stories. continue our conversation with author Tim Harford, who writes about economics in a way, well, it's just storytelling. Here in Our American Stories, that's what we care about. And his book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, is chock full of great stories. And we're going to drill down on just a few. Tim, you've said that 50 inventions in your book were not chosen based on some perfect measure of importance, but instead, these are 50 inventions that most of us just don't give much thought to, but my goodness, they changed everything. One such invention is the limited liability company. Without the LLC, modern life would be very different. Talk about that. Yes, and some thinkers believe that they're, they're more important than, say, electricity or the railways or these, these amazing um, physical technologies. And, and the reason being, uh, the limited liability company was very important in allowing companies to raise money. Um, so the, what is essentially true about a limited liability company is that um, if, um, if you and I, say, decide we're, we're going to um, invest in a company and we, you know, we, we decide we're going to put $10,000 into a company and try and get it all started, we may lose our $10,000. But we can't then be pursued for any more money. Like I've put my $10,000 in, you can't get $20,000 out of me or $50,000 or a million dollars if the company does something wrong. Yeah, my, my liability is limited to the amount of money I originally put in. And so having this protection for investors made it more attractive for investors to, to put money into companies. It made it easier for companies to raise money because the investors knew there was there was a limit to their downside. And that in turn was important because it meant that suddenly you could raise money from people who didn't know you. Previously, you would only be able to raise money from very close friends, from family, because their liability would be, be unlimited. If you did something stupid with their money, there was no end to the amount of trouble that they could have. So, so limited liability enables companies to go out and raise money from a large number of strangers to saying we've got a great business plan and if you if you give us some money we will we will invest it wisely and you know you'll make profits you think about companies such as um general electric trying to set up an entire electricity grid or you think about the railway companies i mean how is a railway company supposed to make money you've got to build an entire railway and you've got to put the trains on it before you can collect a single dime from any railway passenger Clearly, you've got to raise a huge amount of money. So the limited liability structure allowed that to be possible. And so you, you could have these huge infrastructure projects, water, uh, railways, electricity. 
there have been a lot of downsides. Of course, a lot of people have been ripped off by limited liability companies. Companies have taken too much risk. Um, people get enthusiastic. They pour too much money in, bubbles. Um, there's a long, long history of people being ripped off. But overall, I think you would say this was a very important step in the creation of, of major uh, multinational companies. They really couldn't exist without limited liability. Indeed. I mean, a capital is the oxygen of innovation. I mean, how do you innovate without capital? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Otherwise, you've just otherwise got very, very small companies or um, or you have to already be a billionaire to set up something major. That's right. And let's talk about concrete. This was fascinating to me. Uh, why does concrete matter and how did it help develop modern life? Well, it matters because it is ubiquitous. It's probably the substance that we humans use more of than anything else with the exception of water. There's a lot of concrete in the world. Uh, it's a very, very flexible, very versatile building material. Um, from the point of view of an engineer or, or an architect, uh, actually the trouble with concrete is once it's built, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't change it. It's not like bricks. Bricks, you can, you can take down a, a brick wall or a brick house and reuse the bricks. But for a structural engineer, for an architect, it's a very, very... Um, robust, flexible, and inexpensive material. And so we pour a lot of it. Concrete bridges, concrete skyscrapers, it's everywhere. Um, there is an amazing fact that I checked three times and then some colleagues of mine at the BBC said they didn't believe. And so they, they fact-checked me and they came back and said, no, you were right all along, Tim. And that fact is that in three years recently, I think it's 2008, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly, but three recent years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. It gives you a sense of the, the building boom going on in, in China and how incredibly important this material is. So, I mean, that's why it matters, it, because it's everywhere. Um, where did it come from? We've had Concrete for a very long time, probably 10,000 years, it's been discuss, uh, discovered in um, settlements in Turkey, 8, 10, maybe 12,000 years ago. The Romans used a lot of it. The, um, the Parthenon, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, there's this uh, ancient church, it's nearly 2,000 years old, called the Parthenon. It's made of concrete. And if you go in and you look up, it's, it is recognizably concrete. It reminds me a little bit of the Washington, D.C. metro system. It's quite striking. Um, and the, the big leap forward uh, was in the 1800s, uh, a French gardener called Joseph Mernier was trying to make concrete flower pots. And they didn't really work until he realized he could reinforce them with a steel mesh. And there's this amazing thing about the, the steel. The steel and the concrete, as it happens, expand and contract when they get hotter and colder at almost exactly the same rate. And so this is very unusual for two materials. But it means you can put steel reinforcement inside concrete and it won't instantly crack when, when the concrete hit, heats up. It makes the concrete vastly stronger under certain kinds of stress and it means you can make concrete skyscrapers, concrete bridges, uh, which, which would have been impossible. So um, it's a remarkable material. We are maybe storing up trouble for ourselves because um, some of those reinforcements are starting to get exposed to the elements. They're starting to rust. That makes the concrete 
way, way um, weaker. And so you see these dreadful bridge collapses that happen from time to time. That's catching up with us. And uh, it's probably going to catch up with China, too. Let's talk about index funds. I I was uh, stunned to see it here, but then I read the chapter and my goodness, it belongs here, doesn't it? I think so. Paul Samuelson, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, a few decades ago, Paul Samuelson said that the index fund ranks alongside wine, cheese, and the wheel as an invention of human history. I mean, that may be um, slightly exaggerating things, but it has saved, the index fund has saved a lot of people a lot of money. The basic idea of an index fund is you want to invest in the stock market rather than pay some expert to pick stocks for you. Um, for which they will charge you handsomely. Why not just invest in the, the market as a whole? Just say, well, if the market as a whole goes up, I make money. If the market as a whole goes down, I make money. But I'm not going to worry too much about picking stocks. And perhaps surprisingly, that turns out to be really just as good as paying an expert and cheaper. There's lots and lots of evidence that suggests that um, it's very hard for expert stock pickers to do much better than, than just whatever the market is doing. So this was observed by Paul Samuelson, this Nobel Prize winning economist. And he wrote an an essay saying um, somebody should invent a kind of fund that just invests in the index. What then happened, this is probably the first time in human history this has ever happened, is somebody paid attention to something that an academic economist said (laughs) and said, you know what, this is a good idea. His name was John Bogle. And um, Bogle had just set up his own um, investment company and um, he was looking for low-cost investment strategies and he came across Samuelson's challenge and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to develop an index fund. And at first he was a laughing stock. Other Wall Street funds criticized him, scorned him, accused him of being a communist, accused him of being unpatriotic because, you know, Americans, Americans aren't willing to settle for the average. They, they want to do better. And initially, nobody invested, nobody showed up. But slowly, 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 uh, his funds got more and more investors. And it, it's called Vanguard, or well, the company is called Vanguard. It is one of the largest fund managers on the planet. Uh, and this strategy now of just passively investing in the market is hugely popular. And it's all down to, to Bogle and Samuelson. And I, I saw an estimate that something like a trillion dollars, if I remember rightly, something like a trillion dollars of investors' money has been saved that would otherwise have been paid in fees to Wall Street over the last 40 years. And that's winners and losers for sure. They are the winners being the public and the losers being the experts. And I might add, it allows ordinary people to go into the markets and just play the economy over a long period of time without the worry of picking winners and losers themselves. Absolutely. And it's how, how I do it. I mean, I write for the Financial Times. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I have quite a keen interest in markets. But I know enough to know I don't think I can beat the market. So I, I use, as it happens, I'm not paid to endorse them. As it happens, I use Vanguard index funds. They seem as good as any. And um, you know, it's the same performance, but for lower fees. So uh, if a Financial Times columnist and um, professional professional economist is saying, uh, I can't do better than a passive index fund, I think the same is true of most of the people listening to this program. There may be a few who can do better, but uh, a lot of people would do better just 
putting their money in the market and uh, crossing their fingers. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And to hear more of Tim's book and the other stories in this remarkable book, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The stories are just so good. All of these stories about modern invention, modern life, modern business, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites. The American people, you, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier, wilder, more chaotic boom-to-bust-and-back-again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He was born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks and in finance. 
Maggie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in the Depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackie and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Lode historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Lode strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of the of 1849 and they were hoping that they could find some water throw some dirt into their uh, long toms which were these wooden boxes and wash the dirt while they were damming a natural spring they found which was right up here they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold and it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy, and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. When they learn of the Comstock load strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant 
states of, you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, in, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock load continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for six. Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but if you give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted, Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ofer pit, and they called it Ofer after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ophir mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions. And they got it right, because hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces and in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackey and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sharon roars with laughter. 
Then one day, Mackie and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackie and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500 foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load, what is called the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed it with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain, and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So. They brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber and then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. Charwomen buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields 65 million in gold and silver and pays 43 million in dividends, more than 4 billion 
in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. It's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on the fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like for giving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains. Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings. And my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine. Well, it's many a man. Sweet 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about music. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song. We've done all kinds. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up there on the topic section. I think we got about 20, everything from the doors to country music. One of my favorites, There Goes My Life, the story of Kenny Chesney's hit. But there are so many from every musical idiom. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Story of a song. And what we were listening to as we bumped in was Christina Aguilera's Candyman, which was written by our next storyteller, Linda Perry. According to Aguilera and Perry, the song was a tribute to the Andrews Sisters, iconic World War II song recorded in 1941, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B. Ever wonder how a chart-topping hit single is made? Well, here's Greg Hengler. Most of our story of a songs have been based on timeless and relatively deep songs. What we are about to do now is tell the story of a song that falls into, let's say, a less profound category. To tell this story is former lead singer and songwriter of the early 90s rock group, Four Non Blondes, Linda Perry. Remember them? Linda Perry left the band in 1994, started two record labels, and began writing and producing hit songs for the likes of Gwen Stefani, Adele, Alicia Keys, and Christina Aguilera. Here she is to tell the story of how one of her hit singles was created. Perry said that the process of making the song was so unlike me. According to her, she was going through a weird phase during which she wanted to learn how to program drums. Here's Linda Perry. I'm very, you know, I'm always interested in things. And so, like, I, I called up a friend. I'm like, what's that sound out there right now that you're hearing on the radio and stuff? And they're like, oh, you got to get a Triton. It's a, called a Triton keyboard. I'm like, a Triton keyboard. All right. And then what? what's that sound on the drums? Like, what's that thing? It's obviously not real drums, but what's that? Oh, those are MPCs. You get these programs and their program sounds already. And you can create your own and you just put it in. It loads these sounds and you got kick snares. I'm like, MPC, you know, I'm like, and then what would be like if you could get like a, 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 you know, like a program of some sort that had like all different types of sounds, what would that be? Oh, that would be the rolling blah, blah, blah expansion thing that has all these cards. Okay, great, thanks, you know? And so I go to Guitar Center and I buy all these things. I come back, I plug it all in, my MPC, my, my whatever Triton. And so I'm like, okay, all right, all right. What does this thing do? Okay, let me, all right, well, let me start with the beat. Basic enough. All right, loop that down. Okay. All right, I need a bass part that goes with that. And I can't find a bass sound. So I'm like, all right, let me just pick up my real bass for right now until I figure out with that. So I pick up my real bass, just sub it out. Boom, 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 boom. Do, 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 boom, boom, boom. All right, okay, cool. That's cool. All right. Oh, what's this thing doing? I'm opening up all the sound. Clav, you know, this, you know, horns. And I just start adding all these things. I mean, everything. I mean, I have harpsichord, clav, horns. 
I don't know what that sound is. I mean, just there's so many sounds going on, and I just add it all. Little percussions. Oh, percussions. Just like never in a million years. Percussions in here? And now I'm just fascinated, and I'm just having a good time. All right, okay, I need Wawa, and this doesn't have Wawa. Okay, I can get my guitar, but otherwise. All right. All right, now I need some kind of vocal, you know, and then I pick up my bullet microphone because I, I know I don't want to sound like Linda. This is a character. So I pull up a harmonica microphone, run it through this compressor, compress the hell of it. I'm like, okay, what is this song? You know, okay, now I'm going to do something Linda never does. Think, pre-think of lyrics, pre-think of a concept, you know. Never done that before. So I'm like, okay. I'm going to think of every cliche I can think of. And then I just started singing the song about, okay, I'm coming up, so you better get this part. And all the lyrics just started, you know, pull up to the bumper rubber in my Mercedes Benz, you know, like just like joking and laughing as, and I'm like writing this stuff down as I'm singing. And then I record it. Literally, this all took place in a matter of 15 to 20 minutes, okay? 15 to 20 minutes. And then I'm done. It's already pre-mixed because everything is just all right there. I mean, you don't have to do much, you know, with that kind of stuff. I call up my manager. I play it to her on the phone, and she's all, what's that? I go, I just wrote a dance hit, and I knew it was a hit, you know. And she's like, well, you can't do it. I'm like, no, it's not for me. It's got to be for somebody else. Who do we think of, you know? And I'm thinking Madonna. I'm thinking, you know, we got to get it to whatever and life is just a beautiful thing. Life is just, it's, this is, again, the best thing I can just tell in general that has nothing to do with what you're talking about in this story, but life just wants to give. It wants to give you gifts. It has so many gifts to give you, but you just have to be open to receive them. Because once you're open, once you put your hand out, life is gonna give you a gift. A week later, this crazy girl calls me, leaving this radical message on my machine. It sounds like a nut, you know, like, I don't know what this girl's going on. Are you Linda from Four Non Blonde? I think she's a fan. It sounds like, who is this? My name is Pink, you know, I'm whatever. And I start asking, do you know Pink? Oh, yeah, this girl, she's a white chick, R&B girl, pink hair. And then this video comes on, and I'm seeing this, there you go, bling, bling, ching, ching. And I'm like, no, this girl, she's got the wrong girl. Like, she wants to write with me or wants me to sing on her album. That's it. And when I met her, I was like, it was like we connected, bam. And then I played her, get the party started. I gave it to her. And I think it was two days later, she called me back or the <laughs> L.A. Reed called my manager or something like that and said, we got our first single. Is Linda interested in writing some more with her? Get the Party Started was released November 2001 as the lead single to her album Misunderstood and peaked at number one on the American charts. It became a worldwide hit, reaching number one in Australia, Ireland, New Zealand, Romania, and Spain. In 2002, Pink headlined a tour of America, Europe, and Australia, the Party Tour, as well as becoming a supporting act for Lenny Kravitz's American Tour. 
Thanks to this single, Pink was named the top female Billboard 200 artist of 2002. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Story. And what a great story. Greg Hengler is always digging him out for us. And the story of his song, very different than the rest of our stories of this song, the way the song got put together. I remember when this song came out and the girls would just rush to the dance floor. I never figured out why women rush to some songs and not others. Guys don't generally rush out onto the dance floor. They follow, and they follow the lead and do their best, I think, most of us, to just uh, come along and move along and dance along. But great storytelling as always, Greg. And by the way, the next time anyone talks to you about the Constitution or the founders, and it seems so ephemeral to you, a discussion about it, remember it was Benjamin Franklin during the constitutional debates who insisted that property rights and intellectual property rights be protected. And so we had both of them protected. Article 1, the patent. And so all of our art spring from this. All of the ideas of all the storytellers that we feature, the writers, the artists, everything. Not just products, folks. Ideas protected by our founding fathers and the Constitution. None of American culture possible without it exporting it to the world. The story of a song. The story of let's get the party started here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, from the arts to sports to history, and stories from you. And this next story comes from our own Alex Cortez. Let's take a listen. Darcy Olson is a foster care mom, which led her to become the adoptive mother of three children. And now, with her organization Generation Justice, she's fighting for the rights of children in foster care. But today, Darcy brings us back to 2011, when she was the head of an Arizona think tank called the Goldwater Institute. We had a local municipality that wanted to keep a sports franchise where it was. And in this case, it was the city of Glendale, and they wanted to keep the Coyotes hockey team in town, and they felt really strongly about that. They felt that having those Coyotes games would bring ticket holders and increase sales of ice cream and pendants and all kinds of things in the community. But the team was not profitable and was asking for a subsidy. From the government, which almost no businesses get, but a lot of professional sports teams with their wealthy owners do. The city of Glendale put together a deal where they were going to give $300 million to the Coyotes, essentially, to stay in the community. The public, many of them felt that that was not a good idea. But beyond that, the Arizona State Constitution had a prohibition that said you can't give tax dollars to a single entity like that. In other words, you know, if you spend public money, it has to be for the good of everybody. 
And so at the Goldwater Institute at the time, we brought that to the attention of the newspapers and to the team and, and all the dealers and the politicians and simply said, if you go forward with this deal, we're not going to have any choice but to, to go to court and enforce this provision of the Arizona Constitution. And there was a lot of hue and cry about this. And before long, it was in all of the state newspapers and it was the talk of radio shows and Senator McCain was on air talking about it. And the commissioner of the NHL was talking about it live to full crowds at the stadium. And the Goldwater Institute was painted as the villain in this situation by some of these entities that stood to gain a lot of money from the taxpayers. So we were on the side of taxpayers, but publicly it made it look like we were kind of the bad guys, you know, trying to kick this team out of the community, which, which of course we were not trying to do. One day I had my tiny little foster baby in my arms and I lived out in the desert and we would go out in to watch the sunrise and I would give her her first bottle of the day. And I walked out the front door of my home into a pool of blood. It was just all over the, the front area. And I looked down and there was a beheaded rabbit. And living in the desert, my first thought was this was a wild animal. This is just a kill and, and it was left there. And then as the fog lifted just a little bit from my early morning brain, I realized that it was a, it was a clear and clean decapitation and uh, the carcass had not been chewed up and that this had actually been intentionally left on the doorstep. And it didn't take but a second to realize that this was just one more warning that we were getting to, to stay out of this particular deal. A pretty scary warning to be personally targeted for your own home with a child in it to be trespassed upon in such a vulgar way. What was frightening about that was my home was really in, a, in an extremely rural area. And because at this time I was renting, my name wasn't even on the property paperwork, which meant that someone had followed me home. And of course I had this tiny little infant that I was in charge of. Darcy's very first foster child. And yet this harrowing experience didn't scare her off that path. That was my first one. I have many now, but... <laughs> it might have for a lot of us. And sadly, Darcy Olson's story isn't some isolated incident. Others who've simply taken public policy positions in the public square have been attacked, too. We were traveling, and a neighbor uh, told us that our house had been egged in a way that was done not the way kids do it. And frankly, kids in our area don't uh, egg, they teepee with toilet paper. But our house was egged, and also there was an attempted break-in, which fortunately was not successful. This gentleman, John Tillman, is the head of the Illinois Policy Institute, a think tank that's working on Illinois' comeback from being the state where the greatest number of its own people are fleeing. 
I have a 17-year-old daughter. She turns 18 at the end of this month, and a wife who is very concerned about these things and asking about her personal safety. It's a little bit sobering. You know, um, I think what, for me, what this drove home was the importance of privacy, of regular citizens being able to maintain their privacy. Um, you know, when it comes to the causes that they support, the things that they believe in, the vast majority of Americans are really great people. They do a lot with their money. They pay tithes to their churches. They, you know, they support all sorts of different causes. We have such a robust private sector. And unfortunately, there are some people out there who have loose screws. And when they get a hold of that information, they can really compromise your safety and the safety of your family. And that was really driven home to me uh, when, when this happened. Now, I was in a situation where, because it was work-related, I could get private security and I could make sure that the baby would be okay and things like that. Now, Darcy was the head of the nonprofit Goldwater Institute, and thankfully, their financial supporters were willing to make this possible. But it's not possible for most of us. Most small businesses couldn't afford to pay for private security for an employee and aren't especially interested in paying for it either. Given that speaking out about the government isn't their actual business that takes care of their families. So the rest of us, when we speak out about government issues, could be even more at risk than Darcy and John were. Clearly, it's not an easy thing for them, either. Somebody like me who's engaged in a public battle, uh, you know, comes with the territory, as my daughter once told me. Dad, you asked for this, so you got to man up and toughen up. Uh, she was nine at the time, and I thought that was very good advice. But think about the person who, um, you know, might have an employer who might not agree with their political views, either on the left or the right, or somebody who goes to a church but feels that some of the teachings of that church aren't in keeping with them, and they want to advocate for Oh, it could be for gay rights or traditional marriage, either side. In U.S. history, we have a really long tradition of having robust discussions of all kinds of contentious issues. We go all the way back to slavery, for instance, or the 19th Amendment and, you know, the right of women to vote and you name it. And people have always been contentious. But, you know, when you have, like you have today, you have people who are just not quite in the rational game and they can't appreciate that discussion for what it is and instead of discussion what they want to do is intimidate or threaten or maim it becomes critical that we have those privacy protections built in that is critical to a free society privacy protections that allow us to speak out about the affairs of government in newspapers advertisements donations you name it while keeping our identity private. America's history of protecting anonymous speech goes as far back as those very contested discussions which Darcy mentioned. Thomas Paine threw gas on the fire of the American Revolution with his anonymously written common sense. Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay in arguing for the ratification of their drafted constitution for this new nation 
wrote the Federalist Papers anonymously under the pseudonym of Publius. And someone then anonymously wrote a rebuttal under the name of the Federal Farmer. We still don't know who did it. The Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that the right to anonymous speech is protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. And yet, there is a movement afoot to force the disclosure of donors to nonprofits. Several states have had ballot measures to do it, and South Dakota, Missouri, and Washington have passed it. Think about uh, individuals who live a relatively quiet and shy retiring life, and if these kind of trends continue, they're going to have to report their personal name, address, uh, perhaps their phone number and the amount they gave to all the different nonprofit causes to the government and then have it be publicly reported. Imagine the wackos that can go mine that data and start showing up and knocking on your door. I don't think we want an America where participation in democracy is oppressed because of public reporting of private giving. I think it's an outrage and against the very founding of the country. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job, Alex. And to learn more about the importance of anonymous speech and to take action to defend it, go to unitedforprivacy.com. That's unitedforprivacy.com. And folks, if the government wants to know your name and why you're given to what you give it, you got to always ask yourself, why do they want to know? Who wants to know my name? And next thing, are they going to ask for our name when it comes to who we voted for, too? Big questions here, and we answer them here on Our American Stories. <laughs>